if you are not aware, here we cover five chapters a week. The ideal is because there's five weekdays, you take a chapter a day, read through it sometime on the weekend, read it all in one sitting. This particular section in Ecclesiastes, we decided to do four chapters this week since it breaks up evenly into three weeks. So we're doing 9 through 12. I'm going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes for you. And if you guys honestly read this week and were honest with yourselves as you read this week, I think you read this way more than once. That's the nature of Ecclesiastes as I come to it is it overwhelms my head and it makes me think, what? Amen. Is this inspired? And that's why scholars have had debates about whether or not Ecclesiastes belongs in the Bible. But my view, and I think most of ours here, is that it indeed does belong in the Bible. Now, I did a lot of reading because I'm, if I was honest with myself, and I did not pretend to understand most of what I read. So, as I did a lot of reading, I read a lot of things that I thought were correct, but did not think were adequately hitting the point of this book. Let me explain. Overwhelmingly, you hear people say um, that Ecclesiastes is a book of vanity, which I agree with. But it's a book of vanity because it's looked at without God. And that I agree with as well. However, I believe it needs to go one more step further in clarification. This is a book of vanity, and vanity does indeed exist without God. But I see the preacher, as he calls himself in this book, the preacher as affirming that just knowing God does not rid vanity... Rather, knowing God teaches us to cope with vanity. So as you read Ecclesiastes, it's not that vanity, vanity, all is vanity, well, he should get to know God. It's rather vanity, vanity, all is vanity, I need God to help push me through the vanity that I will see all the days of my life. And that's why initially I had a hard time with the book. Because as I was honest with myself, I realized that I am not living a life that is free from vanity. There's way too much vanity in my life. There's way too much that isn't right. There's way too much that I wish was different. There's way too much that is far from an Edenic-like lifestyle. So that's what I want to throw out to you guys tonight is to propose that the preacher in this book wants you and I to grab wisdom because wisdom is what teaches us to cope with vanity all the days of our life. So that's the advantage that we have with God. Not that we are freed from vanity, but that we have ability to carry on alongside of vanity and make the most of it. Are we good? Linda taught me, as I'm now a teacher, that that is something you ask frequently to make sure everyone's on pace with you. All right, let us pray. 
Father, we ask for your spirit to be present as he always is, but in a teaching way. That our ear would be open to receive his instruction. And Father, as we pursue wisdom in the midst of vanity, that we would realize we're talking Old Testament language for Jesus. So reveal your son to us. Awaken faith, open eyes. Bring to life death. Tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm a fan of listening to music as art. I love music that doesn't just get written to be put on the radio so that everyone's like, oh, that's a good band. I like music that takes art seriously. Artists who can craft lyrics that realistically portray life. It's like a window for life looking at it in a creative lens that you've never thought of it before. I like those kind of artists. And not that I would expect you guys to know who this is or even remember, but it's not my point. But I do like a guy named Levi Weaver because he's very good at this. He has an album called The Letters of Dr. Kurt Godet. <laughs> and in the album, he takes himself as Dr. Kurt Godet, a fictitious character, and he pretends to be him, this guy who's searching for meaning in life. And he goes through these phases, and the album is artistically and wonderfully ordered so that you're going through the experience with him. Three stages that he calls the butterfly, the beast, and the bird. The butterfly, the first three songs, is about beauty and love. And he's seeking that butterfly, that beautiful creature, that delicate thing of beauty. And he's pursuing it. And he finds out at the end that purpose must be in something else. And these are quotes. He, said, he sings, My net, the thing you catch butterflies with, My net has drained the color from your wings. Purpose must be in some other thing. So I jumped, he's moving on now, So I jumped atop the wildest beast on earth to break its will before it breaks mine first. So the album moves the next three songs into the beast section. And the beast is him trying to gain a name for himself through his accomplishments. It's all about what he can conquer, what he can finish, what he can do. And by the end, he realizes, I can't ride this beast. It's too strong for me. And he sings, I held on to the beast till I lost the count of days. And when I lost my grasp, I narrowly escaped. On wings of a bird who promised me the sky, I cursed my conquests as we took to flight. And so as he falls off the beast, his, his, his accomplishments aren't enough. He can't handle them. He can't press on. He can't finish enough. He can't do more. He falls off and the bird swoops under and the wings of morality and religion soar him to new heights. And he thinks, this is it. Purpose is in the bird. It's in religion and morality. But the next three songs is this constant frustration being sung. Sometimes I can't choose good from evil. I have no capability of living in morality. And he realizes religion and morality is not the meaning to life either. And then it comes to the end, and he summarizes his pursuit, and then poses a question like this. When the butterfly faded, and the beast shows you the dirt, 
When the bird has died somewhere mid-flight and you crash down to the earth, in other words, when you're incomplete, will you try your feet, get up and do it again? Or will you find your knees and admit defeat? And there comes a point in life when you realize beauty hasn't done it, accomplishments hasn't done it, and keeping some, some system to keep me happy isn't doing it. And at that point, what do you do? Do you get up and pursue another butterfly, another beast, another bird? Or do you just get to your knees and admit, I'm defeated, I'm incomplete, and look elsewhere for completion? Well, the whole album ends with these lines. Very last song. He concludes, The answer looks an awful like... Uh, excuse me. The answer looks an awful lot like another question. <laughs> Grim reminder that our design is limited. Yes, every answer looks a lot like another question, but I can't stop asking. I can't stop asking... Because you will always be a little incomplete. Don't throw away the things you do know. And I can't help but feel that that's the preacher's experience in Ecclesiastes. He realizes he's coming, looking through his own bird, beast, butterfly experience. And he says, I'm a little incomplete still. But don't, just because you're incomplete, you can't grasp all the answers. Because every question and answer is only bringing more questions. And you're never gaining, you're never achieving. Don't throw away what you do know. Don't think that knowledge is impossible. And this is what we think as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. It really relates. It says, whatever has come to be has already been named. Sort of like a determinism, predestined type of thing. Whatever has happened has already been determined, has already been named. And it is all, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than him. <laughs> the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? So he's trying to understand things, and he says, you can't dispute with one stronger than you. You can't dispute with God. And he says, the more words, the more I try to dispute, the more vanity, the more pointless it becomes. And in verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Searching questions. Just like Levi Weaver's album ends. But don't throw away what you know. Just find your knees, admit defeat, and realize we have an answer in God to help us cope through these difficult questions of vanity. Okay. Now, what is the book of Ecclesiastes? I, you, you guys may have heard this. I apologize if you have. I don't get the privilege of sitting where you guys sit. So I'm always upstairs every week, which is a better privilege. Um, <laughs> so I have no clue what somebody has told you yet. But so I'll, if this is review, good. You're going to learn it. So Ecclesiastes, like Job and like Proverbs, it's a wisdom book. Its goal is to instruct with wisdom. Now... 
Obviously, all three of those books do so in a very different way. But because Proverbs and Ecclesiastes has been credited to Solomon, it would be beneficial to look at Ecclesiastes not just alone, but in light of Proverbs. Because he wrote them both, and they're two very different approaches to wisdom. And I'll I'll give you guys three comparison points here. First, Proverbs begins with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes ends with the fear of the Lord. So in a sense, it's as if you could put these books together and say, there you go. Book ends, fear of the Lord. Second point of comparison. Proverbs communicates wisdom in many short sayings. That's why it's called Proverbs. That's what a proverb is. So wisdom in many short sayings. But Ecclesiastes communicates wisdom in one long discourse. And the third point of comparison. The Proverbs state that blessing is the result of wisdom. You pursue wisdom, wisdom's going to take care of you. You'll be blessed. So blessing is the result of wisdom. But in Ecclesiastes, the curse is the reason for wisdom. It's because of the curse, it's because of vanity that we need to pursue wisdom. So you've got two very different approaches to wisdom in these two books. Now, regarding that last comparison... Proverbs, blessing as a result of wisdom. Very clear in Proverbs 3.18. It says that wisdom is a tree of life. That's a very good thing from Eden, if you recall. Wisdom is a very is a very good thing. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So there you have it. This blessing that results from wisdom is an Edenic type of blessing. It's what man is made for. It's what he's to pursue. It's what he's to experience. But Ecclesiastes has this full different feel. And it says, forget Eden. Forget the tree of life. Forget blessings. We're cursed. Vanity. All is vanity. Because we live not in Eden. We live outside Eden. That's why all is vanity. And that's the way vanity can be described as many ways. But I see in the preacher's mind, yes, vanity means emptiness. It means futility. It means vain. It means meaninglessness. It means all those things. But I think that what the preacher has in mind when he says vanity is he has in mind the life we're all living outside of Eden. That is vanity. It's not living as God intended in Eden. You may know that the word vanity is the Hebrew Hebel, which is our word Abel, the name Abel. And that's in, of course, Genesis 4. Abel was the second son born to the first family to live outside of Eden. And man, did his life depict vanity. It was short. It was fleeting. It was futile. It was a vapor. That life was incomplete. It didn't make it to what it was intended to be. 
And since he's using this word, which also means able, I see that that's what he's going with in his mind. is vanity. It's what started with Adam and Eve's first family outside of Eden. This, this death, this short life, this what is going on. We don't, get, we don't get why wickedness prevails. So vanity, life outside of Eden. Now, this book is structured on the word vanity. If you, in reading, did not see at this point that vanity is a keyword, I don't know what you're reading. But as early as verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There, he says the word vanity in the singular form three times. Which is cool. He's not just trying to be repetitive. He's actually setting the structure of the book. Israel was very fond of the numerical value of words. I don't know if you've heard of that before. What it basically is, is, I'll just do it in our alphabet so you get it. Um, A would equal one. B would equal 2, C would equal 3, and so on you go. So you take a name or a word, and you add the words up, or the letters up, and you get a numerical value, right? So vanity in Hebrew, when you add up those letters, it equals the number 37. Now, vanity is used in this book 37 times, which is more intriguing is the three uses of the word vanity at the beginning of the book. Because when you take the number 37, the numerical value of vanity, and you multiply it by 3, you get... (laughs) I wouldn't expect that. 111. 111 is a neat number because the book itself contains 222 lines of poetry. So what we have is two neat halves of 111 lines each. And that's exactly how the book is divided. The 111th line ends in 6 verse 9. And the 112th line begins in 6 verse 10. That is where you would draw a line down the book and divide it evenly in half. Not just by poetic lines but even by words. So, it's very poetically put together, and it all hinges on the word vanity. So remember, to the preacher, vanity means life, we're proposing, means life outside of Eden. And to him, life outside Eden means two simple things. It means that life is momentary, it's short, it's, it's a fleeting vapor, like Abel himself. And second, that life is not only momentary, life is mysterious. Hence, a lot of questions that begin to be asked in 6.10, which we had already read. He asks a couple questions there. So those two points, uh, everything is momentary, everything is mysterious. Those are the two halves of the book. Those are what each half focuses on, the aspects of vanity. For example, the first half, chapter 1 through 6, 9, states that 
Everything is momentary. Well, what you see is what he does is he sets out to discover to inv- and to investigate everything that is done under the sun. He says so in verse 12, that, verse 13, that that's what he wanted to do. He wants to see everything that's done under heaven. And the common phrase is everything that's done under the sun. He wants to see it. He goes through the experiences. And at the end of each and every investigation, you would have noticed as you read the frequent closure, which says, vanity, a chasing after wind. And he says that tons in the first half. But it amazingly disappears, that phrase, vanity, chasing after the wind, amazingly disappears in the second half. So he's seeking all that out through chapters 1 through 4. And then in chapters 5 through 6, 9, he's basically telling you, okay, now that we see that life is momentary, that it's all a chasing after fleeting wind, this is how you cope with it. This is how you deal with it. So that's chapter 5 and 6, verse 9, all that section. Now we get to part 2. We're getting closer to our section, so we're going to get into this. Part 2, everything is mysterious, beginning in 6.10, going to the end. So that means everything's mysterious, not like it's a big case to solve, but it's mysterious in that understanding life is very elusive. It's hard to grasp all the meaning. It's hard to get all the answers. So we see this in 6.10 again. He begins the second section with a confession. Man can't dispute with one stronger than him. And to try to dispute is vanity. That's verse 11. Then in verse 12, question number 1. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? (laughs) In other words, what are we supposed to do here? Second question going on in verse 12. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? (laughs) So what's going to replace me? What's going to happen when I go? These are good questions. What what legacy am I to leave? All these are questions. Now, when we get to chapter 7 and 8, they answer those questions. Chapter 7 and 8 say this. Life is vanity. It's mysterious. We have questions. Man cannot find them out. (laughs) And you see that answer in 8 verse 17. It's in a triplet. It's hard to miss when you read carefully. 8.17 says, this is the, yeah. Um, Then I saw all the work of God, catch the triplet here, that man cannot find out, that's the first, the work that is done under the sun. However, however much man may toil in seeking, here's the second, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know, and here's the third, he cannot find it out. See that? This triplet of you can't find out. <laughs> I ask the question, we explore it through all these different things, and at the end here of chapter 8, I say, you can't find out the answer to these questions. Life's mysterious, it's called vanity. Live with it. Then in chapter 9, just like the, in the first part, he did that whole investigation, then he did the section on coping with it, deal with it. He does the same thing. And that starts in chapter 9. So he said, look, we got these questions. Man cannot know. Deal with it. This is how we deal with it. Life is vain. This is how we cope. Okay? So 9 through 12 is all the coping section. And this is where we read this week. So we'll go through this a little bit. And this is what we'll see. He wants us to cope with life's mysteries. Three of them. Three mysteries. 
coping with the mystery of death. We don't know when it's going to come and why it comes to good and bad alike. Coping with the mystery of death. That's 9, 1 through 10. Then in 9, 11, coping with the mystery of reward. <laughs> why do some servants get exalted and some princes serve and some servants stay servants and some princes stay princes? We, we got to cope with this mystery of reward system isn't always fair in life. And then the third mystery, coping with the mystery of risk, starting in 10.8. The mystery of risk. And you'll see, he talks about everyday activities and bad things happen to people who are doing innocent things. That's a mystery. Why does that happen? Even good people. So, there's an element of risk, and it's a mystery. Deal with it. So, the preacher goes through these, and let's, let's look at them a little bit. Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart. Remember, he's asking those questions. He's searching. They said, man cannot know. So he says, okay, I laid all this to heart. Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event, we're talking about death now, you'll see. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As a good one is, so is a sinner. And he who swears is also as he who shuns an oath. <laughs> He's saying the playing field's even. <laughs> this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event, death, happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For, living, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living at least know something. <laughs> they know that they'll die. <laughs> but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. There you go. The mystery of death. When does it come? We don't know. It comes to everybody. Okay, cope with it. That's basically what he is saying. And then in 7 through 10, you have this hedonistic type of talk. That's what he's... You don't... Death's a mystery. Cope with it like this. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. And he goes on. Dress in white, which is, royal, which is like upper class type of clothing. Enjoy your life with your wife. Um, and it goes on to say, look, enjoy your toil. Find pleasure in life. And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we read that and we say, what? Hedonism? This can't be of God? <laughs> But we'll answer that. Because remember, the idea is that we're learning to cope with vanity. And we'll find what this means. Now, coping with reward in verse 11. Um, I'm not going to read all of this, but I like verse 13. It's a neat story. And you're like, what? I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Notice, not with violence, but with wisdom he delivered the city. Yet, 
No one remembered that poor man. I say to you that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. And along that line, dead flies make the perfume, the perfumer's ointment give off a stench so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Like, this is just, what? He just got finished saying how great wisdom is. And it conquered this king without even fighting, just with words. He turned away wrath, consistent with the Proverbs. And then nobody remembered this guy. Like, that's amazing. That's, that's called a uh, that's good international, I can't remember what it's called, uh, diplomacy. Whatever the guys in the office do. That's the way to do it. Um, but the reward level is like, What? How, how does this guy who's a hero not be treated like it? How is he forgotten? And then it's that strange also reversal of like all of a sudden dead flies, which is folly, uh, can opt. Wisdom's so powerful, but then just a little bit of folly can offset the whole thing. It's really powerful, but it's really delicate. Kind of like an oxymoron. And there's just this whole like mystery of this reward system of folly and, and wisdom and cope with it. So then... We get to verse 8, and this is where you cope with risk. Life is risky. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Now, he's not digging a pit to trap somebody. He's digging a pit to trap an animal, typical trap system. He's just doing his normal job, and he falls into it. (laughs) And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So someone who is um, breaking... You know, deconstruction, um, he's maybe in his garden trying to break down this wall, rebuild it or whatever, and a serpent bites him. Poor innocent guy. What did he do to deserve that? He who quarries stone is hurt by them. So, like, you know, he's, he's moving stone to make a new wall. He's moving out of his field is usually what they did, and that's probably what it means by quarrying stone. He's just clearing the field. And, you know, you get scraped by it. You hurt your back, get a hernia, you know, all those things, you older gentlemen go through I'll be there I, I know I'm not saying I'm invincible I'm just I'm just saying I'm not used to it yet um, I'm like what did you do to deserve that old age you can't help that <laughs> so and so it goes this whole risk-reward system, um, I'm sorry, dealing with risk in life is what it goes on to talk about. And he starts to conclude in verse 5 of chapter 11. Just like 8.17 concluded, this concludes with a triplet. And it's basically saying, deal with it. <laughs> so Ecclesiastes 11.5, watch for the triplet. As you do not know, one... The way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know, that's two, the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know, that's three, which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So there you go again. Life is vain. It's mysterious. 
Man cannot find it out. You do not know. So cope with it. And that's the answer that he gives us. And Levi Weaver, back to the song, concludes the same thing. The answer I'm looking for looks an awful lot like another question. Deal with it. (laughs) A grim reminder that our design is limited. It's vain. It's vanity. You will always be a little incomplete, but don't throw away the things you do know. So here's what we conclude. Life outside of Eden is vain. It's vanity. But we don't leave it there. The preacher gives us hope. He says that through wisdom, we will cope. Vanity's here. It's mysterious. Deal with it. But wisdom's here to help you cope. And that's where chapter 12 comes into play you see the familiar wisdom of language in chapter 12 um, beginning in 9 besides being wise so he talks about the preacher's been wise and all the things he did and then 11 the words of the wise are like goads my son verse 12 beware of anything beyond these so don't go looking for anything other than this wisdom many Of many books, there is no end. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. And that's not to say that studying is bad. That's to say to continually search for wisdom when wisdom is already given before you will weary you. My son, the wisdom's here. Don't go studying for more. That will weary you. So it's like getting back up. Instead of being on your knees, it's getting back to your feet and trying the bird, the butterfly, and the beast all over again. That will weary you. And then here's the conclusion. End of the matter, verse 13. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is where we feel the heart of wisdom. Proverbs begins, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs continues to say that. Job says in Job 28.28, to fear the Lord is wisdom. And here we have in Ecclesiastes, I've given you words of wisdom, my son. And at the very end, so fear God, which means keep his commandments because you know you'll be judged. That's what it means to fear God. Keep his, not I'm terrified that he's going to kill me. I'm, you know, he's mean and angry, so I'm going to hide. Fear of God simply means keep his commandments because with them you'll be judged. That's what it means to fear. Respect his authority. Okay, so how does wisdom help us cope in the midst of a vain life outside of Eden? Because I can hear you thinking, like, that doesn't even make sense. Wisdom, I mean, all we think of wisdom is, is possessing good judgment. He's wise, he makes good decisions is usually what we mean. Or it means the proper application of knowledge. Wow, he can tell it's a skunk. He's a fool because he played with it. But he's wise because he ran from it. 
I mean, okay, that's true, that's all wisdom, but that's too simple. The Hebrew understanding of wisdom, and see, this is the danger, is we sometimes look at, this is how our culture uses wisdom, and we then take it and say, boom, that's what they mean by wisdom too. Ha <laughs> ha! And it's not. Their understanding of wisdom was not more complex, but it was a little different. It adds a little bit more to it. So let me take you briefly through the understanding of what they mean by wisdom so that we can then say, ah, this is how we cope with vanity. So generally in the Bible, and this is generally, I'll get to specifically in a minute. Generally, wisdom is dealing with a person's particular skill over a particular domain. Okay, so if you're really good at something in particular, they would call that wisdom. You, and I know that's backwards from what we think, but you see that in Exodus 36, verse 1. It's very clear there. Where the workmen are called to begin to carve and add all the beautiful and weave the threads of the tabernacle. And it says that the Spirit gave them wisdom to build the tabernacle. The ESV helps get the sense by translating it, the Spirit gave them skill. But it's the actual word that Proverbs uses for wisdom. So you see the idea is that in the Hebrew mindset, to have a skill was to have wisdom about something. But more specifically, we want to know what kind of a skill and what kind of a realm is the preacher calling us to. More specifically, wisdom is creation-oriented. Creation-oriented. And this becomes evident when you read Proverbs 8. And notice that a huge portion is given to wisdom claiming, I was there at the beginning of creation. God is considered wise to the Jew. (laughs) They're smart. Because of what God did in creation. What did he do in creation? Well, he took what the Bible begins with for us is this chaos in Genesis 1-2, this darkness, this, this water. There's not really any life. He takes that and out of it brings creation. That's wisdom. He was able with great skill to turn disorder into order. So, by direct application... Man is wise when he does the same thing. Man is wise when he takes vanity and brings meaning out of it. When he takes vanity and brings blessing out of it. That's wisdom. And that's what the preacher's calling us to. He's made it crystal clear as we read everything is vanity. And we're reading and thinking, this is depressing. But actually, the end is a very good word because he says, everything is vanity for the unbeliever and the believer, but the believer pursues wisdom to bring good out of vanity. That's how we cope with vanity. Wisdom teaches us to bring good out of vanity. Or put another way, wisdom teaches us how to make the most of life though we're outside of Eden. So the fool looks at vanity, concludes in this book, says, oh, all is vanity, whatever, nothing matters, no hope. But the wise man looks at this book and says, all is vanity. There's got to be something redemptive in it. 
And this is what Solomon wants you to get. He wants us to remember what we were called to before vanity came into place. Before we were removed from life in Eden. What was it like before life outside of Eden? What was it like when we were in Eden? You notice in verse 1 of chapter 12, he doesn't just say, remember God in the days of your youth. That would be the direct way of saying it. He says, not remember the strong one on your behalf in your youth. He does not even say, remember the one who imparts grace to you in your youth. All these things we would say. But he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Because he's calling us to remember what wisdom taught us in the very beginning. You guys might remember it's in Genesis 1.28. This is what man's purpose. Remember, Ecclesiastes is saying, what is purpose? Genesis 1.28 gave us that purpose. And it said, this is what I call the creation commission. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the creation commission. Rule and cultivate, have an element of control over your surroundings and creation. Amen. But that's not what happened. The fall, the kicking out of Eden, the the now what's called vanity, the life outside of Eden, was a result not of man cultivating creation, controlling and having dominion and rule over creation. It came as a result of creation ruling, dominating, and cultivating man. Okay, so this is what Solomon says. Five times he has these hedonistic sayings, which isn't hedonism, Spell that in a second. But um, we're running short on time, so this is what I'll do. I'll name them, and you'll see how prevalent this is. It's Ecclesiastes 2.24, and I'll, I'll read this part. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Eat, drink, enjoyment, and toil. Enjoy life. Ecclesiastes 3.12, same thing. Eat, drink, enjoy your work. Enjoy life. Ecclesiastes 5.18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one does in his life. Enjoy life. Ecclesiastes 8.15 I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and enjoy your toil. Good job. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.7, and that's in our part of the text. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved you do it. Verse 9, enjoy life. Um, down towards the middle, because this is that is your portion in life, and in your toil, at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy it all. Enjoy life. Pursue pleasure in the midst of this vanity. <laughs> Careful. Um, <I'll... laughs> all five of those verses exhort joy in the same areas. You guys caught it real well. You guys are very good. Eating, drinking, and toiling. You're to enjoy those. 
And that's what happens with wisdom. Wisdom teaches you to enjoy all those domains of life. It looks at those domains of creation and says, we can control this. We can cultivate this for our enjoyment. And that's why um, it, it almost brings us back to Eden. Like Hebrews 3, uh, Proverbs 3.18 says, he who has wisdom is as if he's at the tree of life again. The wisdom is a tree of life to him who pursues it, it says. But remember that when we were kicked out of Eden, now life outside of Eden is different. We're not cultivating creation anymore. Creation's cultivating us. And it's very evident in the same three parts. Like eating, eating controls us. <laughs> not only with our appetite, that's a somewhat natural, I guess. Maybe we weren't hungry in the garden. I don't know. But it, it controls our diet and our weight. That's a constant battle. That's vanity. Drinking controls us. Sometimes it doesn't allow us to be sober anymore. Creation is controlling us. That's vanity. Third, the toil. We were supposed to, it says, work and enjoy the work, but often we find work mastering and domineering us. Oh, there's another deadline to do. I've got to make the bill this week. Constantly being driven by work. Work dominates us. We don't dominate work. That's vanity. So wisdom enables us to cope with vanity by enjoying God's gifts. And that's why Solomon says five times this book, the preacher says, eat, drink, be happy, enjoy your work, be, be happy, enjoy life. It's too vain not to enjoy. But the reason this is not hedonism it's very clear in our last section, 12, 13, and 14. We already read it where he says, Fear God, keep his commandments, because everything will come into judgment. That verse right there tells you and me that when he says, Go and enjoy life, he is not saying, Be a hedonist. We are to enjoy life underneath the fear and commands of God. That's not hedonism. Hedonism pursues pleasure as an atheist. But, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Enjoymentism, <laughs> ecclesiasticism <laughs> pursues life under the fear of God. So, in short, this is what the hedonist says Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. Life is vain, so bring in the pleasure. But the preacher is telling us, eat, drink, and be merry while remembering that tomorrow we're judged. So do it carefully. Don't do it where, okay, drink, pleasure, yay, and now it dominates you. That's foolishness. But pursue those elements of creation in a way where you are cultivating them, not the other way around. That's wisdom. And that's how you cope with vanity. So, let's close with this. I think what this book tells us, as it says, okay, all is vain, but so therefore enjoy life and use wisdom to help you cope with it. Use wisdom to dominate these realms of life and find enjoyment. That tells me that wisdom seeks ways to redeem this life. It seeks ways. It, all is vain. So redeem what you can. It's, it's too momentary. It's too mysterious. Redeem it. 
redeem life from the curse. Because the result, see, we see the reason for wisdom is because of vanity, but the result of wisdom is the blessing of the tree of life of Eden. Redeem life from the curse. So this is not done, Christian, and this is where we're guilty, I feel. This is not done by escaping this life or by escaping this earth. This is done by enjoying this life and enjoying this earth. I feel like too many times we come away from Ecclesiastes with the wrong message. We come away with the message of, well, if all is vanity, then get me out of here. And we say, the minute I get out of here, that's when it will all be good. So we, we try to withdraw from society. We withdraw from culture. We withdraw from life. And we mutter, all oh, is vanity, all oh, is vanity, while we wait for heaven so that we can be delivered from this earth. Let's go to heaven. That's the wrong message. The right message is the opposite. Rather, and see, that's a pessimistic view. All of us sometimes walk with the place, it's so pessimistic, it's so down. And that's what we do, just mutter uh, this vanity and we withdraw and just wait for heaven to come deliver us. But the right message says that the preacher is giving us a positive view of life. It's simply stating what you feel and know. All is vanity. That's not pessimistic, that's realistic. It's actually optimistic by saying this is realistic, so now let's do good about it. Enjoy life. Cope with it with wisdom. Besides, we're not going to escape this earth anyways. You're holding that hope. Oh, it's a pessimistic, downtrodden, oppressive, depressing message. And like, oh, let's just let heaven deliver us. We are not going to heaven. Heaven is coming to us. Contrary to the popular message you hear, traditionally we hear, we're going to escape from this world and go to heaven. But biblically, we read that heaven is coming here. Now, I don't deny, you die, okay, you go to heaven. That's not heaven, eternal sense. That's, that's a temporary place. The eternal heaven is coming on earth. And since I know that this might be rattling some people's view of what they've always understood, I just thought I should real quick give four reasons why this is the case, so that um, you don't go home depressed, because that's not what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. <laughs> four reasons why heaven's coming to earth. Number one, when Revelation 21 refers to a new earth, it doesn't mean that this earth, the one now, is going to be replaced any more than your becoming a new creation in Christ means that you've been replaced. What does it mean to become a new creation? It means that I'm being redeemed, I'm being restored. That's what it means by new earth. It's going to be redeemed, it's going to be restored. Renewal, not brand newel, I guess you could say. Number two, Matthew 6.10, the part of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is done in heaven. Point, you're going to bring heaven here. Now, it's important to see that that prayer is meant to be fulfilled It's not merely an idealistic request that we pray. 
Oh, it would be nice if that happened, Lord. Jesus taught us to pray that because that's what's going to happen. It's called prayer to change your worldview about what's going on around you. Number three, to destroy this earth and to start over with a brand new one first narrows the redemptive work of Jesus. It narrows it just to humanity because Romans 8 says he died for all of creation. All of it will be redeemed. But it secondly also hands Satan the victory. Satan wrecked Eden. And to just start over, it's like, okay, you won that one, Satan. We'll just do a new thing now. God redeemed this. He got it back. And number four, fourth reason, he got it back just like he got his body back after he died. He rose, new body. We're going to rise, new body. The earth will experience a resurrection. And by that sense, it means a new earth. So the point is, so the point is, Eden was a place of wisdom. Vanity came and made us live outside of Eden, and that's what we're doing. We're living in vanity, but vanity will one day be lifted, and then earth, as we desire it, will be. That one day, that's what we are looking forward to. So this means that the message of Ecclesiastes isn't escape life because all is vanity. It's enjoy life because all is vanity. Wisdom will allow you to get those glimpses of what's to come as we learn through wisdom to take the things around us and to bring good out of vanity, to bring joy out of vanity, to bring cultivation of creation out of vanity rather than us being the ones cultivated. And aren't you guys tired of the world cultivating the church? So let us pursue wisdom and realize, yep, life is vain. Therefore, it's too short not to be wise. So let's redeem this world and this life from the curse and reclaim our creation commission and let wisdom teach us to cope with vanity. Father, that is our prayer. And we need your help to do so. So we ask that you would give us your Spirit's power. So we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us to cope with vanity through your wisdom and to redeem this world from curse, and to bring glimpses of blessing wherever we are. In Jesus' name, amen.